0: welcome back to rock bands podcast i'm jonathan Maliberti. before we get started on rolling stones part five please make sure to subscribe to rock bands podcast on spotify and apple podcasts follow us on instagram at rock bands podcast write us a good review and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends okay rolling stones part five The Rolling Stones before and after the release of I Can't Get No Satisfaction in the summer of 1965 were almost completely different bands. I mean, from 1962 to the middle of 1965, the Stones were in their developmental period. They were getting to know each other musically, they were learning how to perform, how to tour, they were trying to navigate the unexplored territory that was fame for a rock and roll group in the early 1960s, and their music while at times interesting and even groundbreaking was generally forgettable, outside of a few standout songs. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, the budding songwriting partnership, were doing their best to write pop music, but they were so new to the craft of composing that they couldn't even fill half of an album with their original songs. After a few years of relentless work, Jagger and Richards came up with I Can't Get No Satisfaction, a song that completely changed the band's trajectory, from an R&B act to one of the premier popular music groups of the 1960s. And though they couldn't fathom this at the time, Satisfaction probably built them the foundation they needed to become the world's most successful rock and roll band, with a legacy spanning six decades. But Satisfaction did more than just bring them success in pop music. The song was released, luckily, at a time when Mick and Keith were becoming more prolific songwriters. Satisfaction wasn't a one-off hit, but a signal that they had matured as songwriters. They finally hit their stride. Now, they hadn't yet entered their prime as songwriters, but the music they wrote after Satisfaction was to be taken way more seriously, and was to weigh far more heavily on the pop culture and music of the times. It also completely changed the nature of the Rolling Stones, and the dynamic between the members of the group yet again. An evolution was taking place since Andrew Luke Oldham had decided that Mick and Keith were to be the Rolling Stones, Lennon, and McCartney. There was no more question, after satisfaction, who the leaders of the band were. Mick, Keith, and Andrew Luke Oldham, often called the unholy trinity by Bill Wyman. They called the shots creatively in the Rolling Stones, and by far reaped the most rewards for their successes. Bill Wyman described the new band dynamic, saying, quote, From our formation, the group was the Rolling Stones, with a five-way split in money. It was never Mick Jagger in the Rolling Stones, but the extra money they made from songwriting and publishing effectively made Mick and Keith more the leaders than Brian, Charlie, and me. Their names carried the weight. They'd bring a song in, suggest a style, and what the bass line and drums might do, and then we'd play around with it, perhaps, and throw in our own ideas. And they'd say, yeah, that's better, let's do that. But that input by me, Brian, or Charlie was never recognized financially. Unquote. To Bill and Charlie, this new dynamic could be annoying and at times unfair, but fundamentally it made sense. I mean, at the time, things were moving so fast, and they loved everything about the Rolling Stones. Mick and Keith wrote the songs, bringing them higher and higher. Plus, this is what happens in many bands. I mean, composing music, writing songs, is different than arranging music, contributing instrumental parts. And they're paid differently. But to Brian Jones, losing his edge to Mick and Keith was a humiliation, and it pretty much shattered his fragile ego. The post-satisfaction era ushered in a new phase of Brian Jones's decline, a period that was characterized by his erratic behavior, his increased drug use and unreliability, um, his interest in pop culture and psychedelic culture, as well as some pretty interesting and fascinating musical innovations that he made on Rolling Stones' records. Some of the best uh, performances of his career were during this period. Brian Jones is often described as uh, a blues musician uh, who was dissatisfied with the Rolling Stones' direction uh, after they stopped playing hard R&B music. But I don't think he was simply the blues purist that he's often described as. I mean, Brian Jones loved being a pop star. From the success of Satisfaction on, he fell in love with the fame. And this new phase of stardom brought him more recognition than he could have ever dreamed of as a blues musician in the Clubs of London in 1963. Brian loved hanging out with well-known celebrities, you know, artists and poets in the burgeoning, swinging London and psychedelic scene. He loved being seen with musicians like John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Eric Burden, and Bob Dylan. Brian, who was allegedly the musical purist, the guy who was against mainstream pop stardom, made being a pop star central to his identity. It became everything to him. Pretty soon, Brian was more concerned with his clothing, his image in the tabloids, and the famous friends he was being photographed with than he was with being a member of the Rolling Stones. Brian Jones loved being seen in public with John Lennon and Eric Burden and Bob Dylan. And as we'll talk about later in the podcast, he really enjoyed bringing the Rolling Stones in more exotic musical directions, not at all the blues purist that so many people say Brian Jones was. He was actually taking them further and further away from their roots. But fame truly impacted and changed Brian Jones. Keith Richards remembers, quote, "...Brian turned into this sort of freak, devouring celebs and fame and attention." Mick, Charlie, and I were looking at it all a bit skeptical. This is the shit you've got to do to make records. But Brian, and he was not a stupid guy, fell right into it. He loved the adulation. The rest of us didn't think it was bad, but you don't fall for it all the way. I never saw a guy more affected by fame." Unquote. Keith's own relationship with fame is a little simplified here. Uh, Fame had a huge impact on all the Rolling Stones, not just Brian. And interestingly, Keith Richards would also have his fame-induced drug-fueled spiral in the later history of the Rolling Stones. All of the guys, except really for Charlie Watts, liked the recognition and the girls, and fame for them was a measurement of their success as artists the new level of fame also brought a new level of infamy among the so-called establishment—the parents, the journalists, the politicians, etc., many of whom saw the Stones as a definite evil. In June of 1965, the Rolling Stones were even mentioned in the House of Commons. When speaking to a boy who broke a window after a Rolling Stones concert, a member of parliament said about the Rolling Stones, I'm surprised you go along and mix with the long-haired gentleman called the Rolling Stones. What is the attraction for you? Complete morons like that. They wear their hair down to their shoulders, wear filthy clothes and act like clowns. You buy a ticket to see animals like that, unquote. The comments made by the MP were very controversial. Even mentioning the Rolling Stones in parliament seemed out of order, and many people in the press defended and criticized his comments. But the Rolling Stones continued to divide British society, and after Satisfaction, after the Stones truly found global fame, this controversy only got worse. One benefit of fame, however, was not apparent at this time. When the band released Satisfaction in early summer of 65, they were still pretty much broke. Bill Wyman often had less than a few hundred pounds in his bank account, even though they were constantly touring, releasing successful singles and top-selling albums, and their company, Rolling Stones Limited, was allegedly doing very well. Mick, Keith, Brian, Bill, and Charlie weren't really seeing the money come through. The band's management blamed it on a bad recording contract, which gave most of the money to Decca Records, though much of it went to Andrew Luke Oldham and Eric Easton themselves. Oldham and Easton were even getting more money from record sales than the Stones, pretty much making the Rolling Stones themselves the poorest members of the business of the Rolling Stones, though much of this still wasn't clear to the band. In July of 1965, to rectify the situation, Andrew Luke Oldham came in contact with a charismatic New York accountant named Alan Klein. Alan Klein had no reputation to precede him in 1965. However, he would go on to be known as one of the most power-hungry and infamous managers in the history of show business. He would go on to screw over the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, and a few other acts, and cause them years of legal trouble with his tactics. But Klein was pretty much unknown in 1965, and he was just starting to get into the British pop music industry, which he saw as being a cash cow. Klein was extremely charismatic and very persuasive, and he was able to persuade Andrew Luke Oldham pretty much on the spot that what they needed was a new recording track from Decca, and that only Alan Klein could negotiate them one. Andrew decided to appoint Alan Klein as the Rolling Stones' business manager, and charged him with securing the Stones a new recording contract from Decca that got them a lot more money. Just a few days later, Alan Klein met with the Rolling Stones for the first time, and he persuaded them, too, that they should all put their faith in him, and he would work everything out. Bill Wyman was the only one that was sort of skeptical of Alan Klein, even though he couldn't put his finger on why. He remembers that first meeting saying, quote, "...I said to the other four that before we talked business with Klein, we should have our own lawyer present, checking over all the documents before we sign anything. I was immediately shouted down by everybody. Keith jumped up and said, Don't be so fucking mercenary. We've got to trust someone. But I was never comfortable with Alan Klein. I didn't trust him and he knew it. Why don't you like me, Bill? Alan would say to me on many occasions. Because I don't trust you, Alan, I would reply. Unquote. But Bill Wyman's misgivings, though correct, were a few years premature. And it didn't matter. Andrew Lug Oldham had already signed the Rolling Stones away, and Alan Klein was their business manager. Meeting them was just sort of a formality to give them the impression that they had decided that he could be their business manager. The early years of Alan Klein were great. Pretty much immediately, money started pouring into the bank accounts of the Rolling Stones. By the end of July, uh, Klein had negotiated a new recording contract, and the Stones started receiving monthly payments of several thousand dollars. Klein also got Andrew Oldham and Eric Easton to give more of their pay to the Stones, all five guys felt like things were finally going the way they wanted. With the new money, the Stones started buying new clothes, cars, houses. The luxurious side of fame finally became apparent. In 1966, Keith Richards bought a big, beautiful Tudor-style country home with an expansive garden and a thatched roof in West Sussex. Uh, It was called Redlands. Now, Redlands would become an important part of Rolling Stone's lore and the location of one of the most famous drug busts in rock and roll history. Charlie used the new money to buy suits. Bill bought a sports car. And the Rolling Stones were thrilled. I mean, the early years of Alan Klein were awesome. They really had faith in this guy. They thought that he was fighting for them and they could see the results. Now, Alan Klein marked bigger changes in the Stones' establishment. Once again, his entry as business manager meant that Eric Easton, who was up until this point the main person dealing with business, would be pushed out, and Andrew Luke Oldham would focus less on the business aspect and more on the actual music and image of the band, something that mattered less and less and as the songwriting took off and as the Stones became the architects of their own legend. Brian Jones' role also took another hit, as the deal that he personally negotiated with Andrew Lou Goldham and Eric Easton in 1963 was now obsolete, and the new business manager, approved of by Mick and Keith's main ally, Oldham, was now in charge of the finances. However, in the summer of 1965, Alan Klein's coup was simply a means of defending the interests of the band, and nothing substantial in the Stones' management or creative process changed. Yet. At the end of July in 1965, The Stones released their third album, Out of Our Heads, another mixture of R&B covers recorded sporadically in the UK and the US, as well as a few Jagger Richards compositions like The Last Time, Satisfaction, The under assistant West Coast Promotion Man, The Spider and the Fly, and others. The album was the first U.S. number one for the band, however, these days, the big test was singles, whether or not you had a hit that could reach the top spots. The pressure to record a follow-up record to I Can't Get No Satisfaction began immediately. Suddenly, the Rolling Stones' breakneck schedule started moving even faster, and they were expected to have another single ready pretty much immediately. Luckily, they were able to, at this point, produce good material consistently, And they chose Get Off of My Cloud as their follow-up single. Sort of an upbeat, punchy, angry song that captures much of the same mood as Satisfaction, but was musically completely different. Keith said of Get Off of My Cloud, quote, You needed a new single every two months. You had to have another one all ready to shoot. And you needed a new sound. If we'd come along with another fuzz riff after Satisfaction, we'd have been dead in the water. Repeating was the law of diminishing returns. Many bands have faltered and foundered on that rock. Get Off Of My Cloud was a reaction to the record company's demands for more." Get Off Of My Cloud was the smash hit they needed to maintain their momentum after Satisfaction. Although it was released uh, during a hectic period for the band, after a few weeks of rest in August, the Stones were back on the road in September for tours of Ireland, Germany, and Britain. Tours were now a bit different than they were in the early days. For one thing, drugs and partying became a more regular part of life on the road. Mainly drinking and weed, but Brian and Andrew Lug Oldham were into some heavier stuff, like I said. Uh, Uppers, downers. Drugs sort of slid into the Rolling Stones scene, though. Not nearly to the degree that they would, or, or that we would imagine. Other than Brian Jones, the Stones were still sort of conservative with drugs in 1965. Marijuana found itself into the band's grips in two main ways. First, they'd often tour with veteran R&B bands who had been playing on the road for decades, and they would show them the ways of dealing with life on the road, mainly pot and uppers, uh, you know, as ways to deal with burnout and exhaustion. But marijuana was also getting much more popular in London uh, at the time. Pot was the new hip drug, and it was working its way into the youth culture. Bands like The Beatles had released Rubber Soul in 1965, which they later called the Pot Album. And Bob Dylan's brand of philosophical stoner rock uh, went electric that year with the release of his trademark song, Like a Rolling Stone. By 1965, pot was in the scene, and while it still was highly illegal and frowned upon, it was starting to become a normal part of life. Pot wasn't the only vice for the Rolling Stones. Women were a huge part of their lives, both socially and creatively. I mean, pretty much every song they'd ever written was about love or a breakup. The Last Time, As Tears Go By, Tell Me, Play With Fire and countless other early Jagger Richards compositions that never saw the light of day. Writing about girls made sense. They were dating a lot, they had heartbreaks, they broke hearts, and love is sort of the most common subject matter when people are starting to write songs. Listen to any early Beatles, Beach Boys, or Who records. Most of the tracks are love songs in some form or another. Even the blues, which was the form of music that moved the band the most, was pretty much all about love and loss. Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts were both married. Mick Jagger had a long-term girlfriend, Chrissy Shrimpton, who he was serious about and even planned on marrying in the mid-60s. Keith Richards had been, uh, for a while, dating model Linda Keith, who he was totally obsessed with. Brian, of course, had several girlfriends, a few of whom were continually suing him for paternity claims and child support, along with several other on-and-off girlfriends. But Brian and Bill, in particular, took womanizing to extremes. Bill Wyman remembers the situation saying, quote, Mick and Keith usually stayed in their rooms writing songs, and back in London they had steady girlfriends, to whom they were vaguely faithful to. Charlie was 100% faithful to Shirley. Brian and I were not faithful at all, unquote. But life on the road wasn't always easy for the Rolling Stones. Charlie was often grumpy without Shirley, and he'd sometimes even travel back to London, even just for a few days to see her while he was on tour. Mick and Chrissy fought incessantly, and Keith was devastated to find that his girlfriend, Linda Keith, started seeing another man while he was on the road, a story we'll talk about next episode. The relationship between Keith and Linda is interesting because it overlaps in other areas of rock and roll history. Linda Keith famously dated Jimi Hendrix after she broke up with Keith Richards and introduced Jimi to the Animals bassist Chaz Chandler, who formed and produced the Jimi Hendrix Experience. These are all the fascinating connections of rock and roll history. But in September of 1965, a woman entered the story who would ultimately become one of, if not the most important female to ever enter the Rolling Stones scene, Anita Pallenberg. On a very intense tour of Germany, which saw several riots, heavy police security, the half-Italian, half-German model Anita Pallenberg was working in Munich when she was asked by one of her photographers to see the Rolling Stones show that evening. At the show, she was able to get backstage, and that's where she met the Rolling Stones. She remembers the encounter, quote, I was doing some modeling in Germany, and the photographer said, do you want to come to a gig? And I said, yeah, okay. So we went to this kind of pub, and there they were. And then he says, do you want to come and meet them? And by then, I had already had my little stash of hashish, which I used to carry around with me. So I offered them a joint, and they said, no, 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 we can't. So the only one after the show was Brian, who said, yeah, I'll have some, unquote. It sounds kind of silly, but Brian and Anita pretty much immediately bonded over their love of drugs and sex. And they began a romantic relationship that would turn very toxic for both Brian, Anita, and all the other bandmates, which we'll talk about in depth, but in 1965, Brian and Anita formed a connection, and they were pretty soon inseparable. Anita was, in those days, very cool. I mean, she was smart, worldly, she spoke four languages fluently, she was a pretty successful model, and she was unbelievably stylish, wearing psychedelic clothing that was edgy and new at the time. In terms of social connections, Anita was worlds ahead of rock stars. She was in the middle of the burgeoning, psychedelic, and swinging London scene that was about to take over the youth of Britain. She had these cool friends like Andy Warhol, and she'd attend parties with other hip artists in New York, Paris, Rome, and London. She was also a drug taker and frequently experimented with the new drug that would capture the world's imagination in 1966 and 67, LSD. To Brian, Anita was extraordinary. She was everything that he wanted. She was artsy, cool, intellectual, and above all, she loved the pleasures of sex and drugs. And she was a way to go deeper into that dark world of getting high Brian and Anita's relationship progressed very quickly, and pretty soon the two were inseparable, living together in London. Now, Brian and Anita's relationship would become, as I said, very, very toxic, but at first, Anita in some ways revitalized Brian. She gave him an edge. First of all, Brian and Anita became London's mysterious It couple, and the two attracted tons of tabloid attention. They were often seen together at parties chock full of celebrities. But Anita, coming from the fashion world and the artsy crowd that was about to take over 1960s culture, was a few months ahead of the Stones in terms of image. She encouraged Brian to wear edgier, more psychedelic clothing, so Brian became the visual center of the Rolling Stones. I mean, so many people saw the Rolling Stones, and their eyes gravitated towards the blonde guy wearing feathers, ruffles, colorful suits, and hats. He was plastered on magazine covers. The impact this had on stage was noticeable too, especially in places like California, where Brian Jones was the face of the Rolling Stones, and in a lot of ways, the face of pop music. And Mick and Brian would often be dueling it out on stage, performing as enthusiastically, as flamboyantly as they could to keep the audience's attention on them. Anita also gave Brian an edge within the band, She was one of the coolest people around, and everyone, Mick, Keith, Bill, Charlie, Andrew Lou Goldham, sort of respected her presence, especially in the 1960s. The fact that Brian was with her gave him some sort of social significance in the scene at the time, which translated to a temporarily increased standing in the band. It also gave him the creative confidence to contribute to the band's music in increasingly exotic ways. Starting towards the end of 1965 and 1966, Brian's relationship with Anita gave him a mystique. It gave him a confidence that he needed to continue to have a voice in the Rolling Stones. However, it wouldn't be long before it all came crashing down for good. In the fall of 1965, the Rolling Stones continued their touring schedule with more shows in Britain as well as a major tour of the United States, beginning in October. In the US, the Stones were touring to promote the US version of their album, Out of Our Heads, which was titled December's Children and Everybody's, uh, sort of another indication of a growing psychedelic, trippy atmosphere in pop music. Their reception was the warmest it had ever been, and it was sort of on par with the Beatles' arrival to the United States in 1964. The tour was going to be grueling, though. They were playing more shows than they ever had over a six-week period. During their first few dates in New York, Bob Dylan, who was famous for his presence in the Greenwich Village and in the Chelsea Hotel during this period, stopped by to meet the Stones. Dylan had just started his electric phase, and he was riding on the success and the controversy of the 1965 album Highway 61 Revisited, which was starting to piss off a whole bunch of folk fans. Bob Dylan took a particular liking to Brian, who of course made hanging out with other celebrities a priority on tour, and the two of them went out in New York City all night bar hopping and smoking weed. Brian even jammed with Bob Dylan and his guitar player Robbie Robertson, who, of course, would later become the main songwriter and guitarist for the legendary band The Band. Uh, and that jam that they played in the hotel room that night in 1965 is now known as The Lost Jam. Brian loved the scene in New York. There were a bunch of poets, painters, musicians, and socialites that were really into the same sorts of artsy stuff that he was getting into, and LSD. In 1965, LSD was starting to come into the picture. Acid culture was getting started in earnest, just in the underground scene. Brian was starting to occasionally trip, spending all night in his room talking to other high people by candlelight, you know, every couple of weeks. Uh, it wasn't really something that anyone else in the Rolling Stones understood or were interested in. In fact, they thought it was weird, and they kind of wanted nothing to do with it. Brian enjoyed being ahead or above the other Rolling Stones in that way. It was how he maintained his power or his sort of ego by being above or ahead of the band. Keith said about Brian's attitude at this time, quote, He just had this way of ranting on, saying things that would just great. He was totally starstruck. He would say stuff like, when I played with so-and-so, or I saw Bob Dylan yesterday, he doesn't like you. But he had no idea how obnoxious he was being." Unquote. The tour continued across the United States and was notable for its ups and downs. Brian Jones started playing organ on stage, kind of signaling his move towards new ways to play instruments on Rolling Stones records. However, Brian continued to at times be unreliable, and there were other problems, like more riots. And at one point, Keith Richards was badly electrocuted on stage, and he even ended up in the hospital. An injury that could have been a lot worse had he not been wearing rubber boots. But the main focus for Mick and Keith uh, on the road was not performing, because a lot of the time, again, they couldn't really even hear themselves perform. They'd go on stage for a few minutes, it might get broken up by a riot, or if they managed to play a whole show, it was completely drowned out, and, you know, who knows if they were playing in time. So performing wasn't really the point of touring. Uh, The point of touring was to sell their records, and for Mick and Keith, it was songwriting. I mean, they kept writing songs in their hotel rooms between shows, they never stopped. And on this tour, they were working on some of their best songs yet. Mother's Little Helper, Sitting on a Fence, 19th Nervous Breakdown, and so many more were written uh, in part on, on this tour. Towards the end of the tour in Los Angeles, the band stopped back at RCA Studios to record some more of these tracks. They recorded a bunch of what would become their big 1966 album, Aftermath. The song selected for their next single was another good one, 19th Nervous Breakdown. The song's lyrics, written by Jagger, are sort of a criticism of rich society and people who live a life of leisure and still find things to complain about. Jagger explained the song's origins, saying, quote, "'We had just done five weeks of hectic work in the States, and I said, know about you blokes, but I feel about ready for my 19th nervous breakdown. We seized on it at once as a likely song title. Then Keith and I worked on the number at intervals during the rest of the tour.'" Brian, Charlie, and Bill egged us on, especially as they liked having the first two words starting with the same letter." The song, though a big hit, received a lot of criticism for the supposed references to drugs. The lyrics about rearranging minds and taking trips, these were all big buzzwords back then. Jagger later talked about the song's controversy, saying, "...that's a very Los Angeles period. I remember being in the West Coast a lot then. 19th Nervous Breakdown is a bit of a joke song, really, I mean, the idea that anyone could be offended by it is really funny. But I remember people were. It's very hard to put yourself back in that period now. Popular songs didn't really address anything very much. Bob Dylan was addressing it, but he wasn't thought of as a mainstream pop act. And anyway, nobody knew what he was talking about. Basically his songs were too dense for most people. And so to write about anything other than the normal run-of-the-mill love cliches was considered very outer and was never touched. So anything outside of that would shock people. So songs like 19th Nervous Breakdown were slightly jarring to people, but I guess they soon got used to it. A couple of years after that, things took a turn and then saw an even more darker direction. But those were very innocent days, I think. Unquote. The song also perfectly captures Brian and Keith's guitar weaving technique. Keith is playing that glassy riff, and Brian is adding a more mellow, bow diddly rhythm style part. It's Bill Wyman's bass part, though, that seals the deal. The bass of that song is arguably one of Bill Wyman's best ever performances. 19th Nervous Breakdown was the last song the Rolling Stones released in 1965. The song was an important departure for the Rolling Stones. It was the first kind of druggy song that they ever did. Obviously, it wouldn't be the last, and 1966 would be the year where the Rolling Stones found themselves in the middle of a new cultural revolution. Thank you so much for tuning into Rock Band's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Next episode, we're talking about 1966, some of the Rolling Stones' most iconic 60s songs. We're talking about uh, Have You Seen Your Mother, Baby Standing in the Shadows, we're talking about Paint It Black, Under My Thumb, Lady Jane, and so much more. Uh, so don't forget to tune in. Don't forget to follow us uh, at Rock Bands Podcast. Uh, subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, leave a review if you like the show. And finally, share us with all of your Rock and Roll loving friends. All right, until next time, listen to the Rolling Stones.